Shalom, everyone. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley. This is the Unexpected Cosmology. Do me a favor, subscribe if you haven't yet. Hit the like button. You guys know the drill. This week, I hope to have a series of three or four videos uh, coming out, one a day. And this is based on a presentation I gave a couple months ago now, and it's never premiered on YouTube. I'm going to be actually premiering that original presentation on my Patreon account. This will be for Patreon uh, subscribers only, and there will be a link under this video where you can go and sign up for that. And that gives you an all access pass to the unexpected cosmology, including all my articles, all my PDF files, including videos like that one, which are intended for supporters of this ministry. This is called Nero Ridivivus or Revivus, the legend of Antichrist. The overarching theme with the seven-headed sock puppet beast is death and rebirth, of which Nero holds the crutch. If participation rewards were being handed out by the Happy Feelings Committee, then he wouldn't receive one because he would be busy killing off the other participants, maybe even kicking them while they're down afterwards. I'm willing to bet the entire suicide story was a hoax. That's something I've also covered in the past. It smells of the usual fish, but mostly psychodrama. Kind of like Mark Antony and Cleopatra's double suicide, which is of further interest here because Mark Antony was both Nero's great-grandfather on his father's side and great-great-grandfather on his mother's. You can probably tell that I'm itching to dig into these intel psyops. If only there were more time in the week. While I have your attention, though, Mark Antony was declared Bacchus incarnate, and Bacchus was Ham. So many gods among men, most of whom are contrasted with the death and rebirth of Yahushua HaMashiach, it's difficult keeping track of them all. Hopefully you haven't already forgotten Nero's placeholder as the sixth head of the beast, and that his deadly wound was healed with the coming of Vespasian. So you're going to be lost probably if you haven't looked at my presentation on the the uh, the seven-headed leviathan the beast and how when the the sixth head was uh, crushed it actually when you like chop off the head of leviathan two more grow in its place so even though it's a seven-headed beast there's really like eight heads that pop up there's two in the place of where nero was there's hardly a better contender for the man of lawlessness than nero his killing spree is somewhat legendary. Nero is believed to have had a part in killing his adopted father, Claudius. He then went on to murder his stepbrother, uh, Britannicus. With these two out of the way, his place on the throne was secured. But that was only the beginning of his murderous appetite. Nero murdered nearly everyone close to him, including his own mother, Agrippina the Younger. I want to say Agrippa, but you got to throw that Ina in there at the end. His aunts, his first wife, Octavia, and allegedly his second wife, Papia Sabina, who was pregnant at the time. After ordering the exile and murder of Faustus Sulla, Nero then proposed to his widow, Claudia Antonia. When she refused his offer, he had her charged with an attempt of rebellion and executed. There are plenty of other names which can be included here, as nearly every other member of his family in the Caesar dynasty, including relatives by marriage, were off by Nero. How much of this is Roman propaganda or simply part of an elaborate intel psyop is a question I've been asking. 
there's no way to tell really as I wasn't there. But knowing what I do now of how contemporary contemporary events unfold, the passing of the baton from Nero to Vespasian comes across as a scripted ceremony, performance witchcraft. For all I know, Caesar's family was carted off to a secure location one by one. Yes, the world was still a stage then, and Rome was certainly sophisticated enough to pull it off. You shall get a further glimpse into what I'm insinuating in just a moment. For certain, Caesar's depravity extended a hand to his unquenchable sexual appetite. In 67 AD, just one year before his suicide, Nero married the young boy Sporus, but not before he first had him castrated. Sporus then appeared in public as his wife, wearing the regalia that was customary for Roman empresses. At the time, it was noted that Sporus had an uncanny resemblance to his second wife, Papia Sabina. And I don't know why I just now thought of that. I can't help but wonder if uh, Sporus was his second wife. Hmm. Following Nero's suicide, Sporus became involved with Otho, if you recall. Otho was the second of four emperors who followed Nero's wake in 69 AD. Well, Otho had also been married to Papia until Nero forced their divorce. After Otho's three-month reign, ending, of course, in suicide, Vitellius intended to cast Sporus in the starring role of Persephone for a public performance of The Rape of Persephone, a staple of the Illicinian mysteries. Apparently, the play was intended to be a very real reenactment of The Rape of Persephone. Uh, Sporus, however, committed suicide before the show could open. Shortly after the burning of Rome, of which Nero was said to play the liar, the emperor built a pleasure palace overlaid with gold, ivory, and mother of pearl. Visitors were greeted by a 120-foot statue of himself. Once inside, the reported all-you-can-eat buffet court would put Las Vegas to shame. There were even panels in the ceiling that would rain flower petals and perfume upon his guests as they undressed each other. Tacitus wrote of one such orgy, which went on for days. It culminated in another of Nero's marriages to a freedman named Pythagoras. Whereas Pythagoras played the role of his husband while Nero filling in for his bride. Their ceremony was a public one, and on the night of their wedding, Nero loudly imitated the moans of a virgin being deflowered. There is even a game reportedly invented by Nero in which he would dress in animal skins and attack the genitals of men and women whom he had bound to stakes. Imagine getting an invite to one of those parties. No, thank you. He also ordered Locusta, a person described to us as a female assassin, to be publicly raped by a, quote, specially trained giraffe, unquote, before being torn apart by wild animals. And that's the other thing, the wild animals, the public killings. Nero's lust for blood included lighting followers of Messiah on crosses or feeding them to his beast. One notable kill included Kepha, who was hung upside down on a cross in the circus. I've already covered that episode earlier on. The fire which burned Rome in 64 AD, by the way, started from the circus. Call me slow, but I just noticed something. 
St. Peter's Square at the Vatican happens to look an awful lot like the illustrations of the circus given to us. And the circus, of course, happens to be the site of Kifa's upside-down crucifixion. In an earlier publication of my 70 AD manifesto, the one I'm reading from now, I included the sketch without providing further commentary upon it. I checked. St. Peter's Square is the exact site of Kifa's crucifixion. Many of you will tell me, duh, you've known that factoid since like the fourth grade or whatever, and that your brain is so huge that you couldn't even pick your nose or risk killing yourself. Yeah, well, it just so happens that I have a medical condition whereby my body doesn't produce its own caffeine. I haven't had my daily supplement yet. And as it turns out, I did hear about it on any number of occasions now that I think upon it. Give me a break, will you? There's a lot of clues moving about in my soul cloud, and for whatever reason, yeah, assign me a secretary that doesn't always file everything away in the right cabinet. Stop distracting me on my reconnaissance mission, or we'll never get through this. The obelisk stands out like a sore thumb, more like another appendage, if you get my drift. Somebody left the barn door open. It's feeling a little breezy in St. Peter's Square, if you get my meaning. Isn't it just a little odd to you that the very phallus, which is said to overlook Kifa's crucifixion, still stands in St. Peter's Square today? Am I to believe that nobody in 2,000 years of official church history found the sex and sun worship associated with it offensive to the Bible they held in their fingertips? And let's see, what do we have here? Let's see if I can read this. Because of the solid pedestal on which the obelisk, the obelisk was placed, it remained standing for 1,500 until it was moved to where it stands today in St. Peter's Square. It took 13 months between 1585 and 1586 to move and re-erect <laughs> re the obelisk. The idea to move it was that of Pope Sixtus V as part of his desire to recover and re, re <laughs> His desire to re-erect all the obelisks lying then in the ruins of Rome. What Rome needed was Viagra. Oh, wait, never mind. It says here that Osiris's penis was moved to its present location between 1585 and 1586, by which, in their words, it was re-erected. Makes total sense and explains everything. According to the timeline I've offered you, the thousand-year reign of Mashiach had come to a close by then. What better way to give the middle finger to the kingdom than with the biggest, fattest obelisk in the world at the welcome mat of St. Peter's? Even beyond the grounds of his circus, though, Nero was said to wander the streets and taverns at night seeking men to assault. If anyone offered resistance, they were off by Nero's guards and their bodies disposed of in the sewer. Doesn't seem very sanitary to me. Other bizarre accounts include Nero breaking into shops so that he could sell those stolen goods at his palace. Normally, I copy and paste these quotes for you to see, but these stories are often recorded and well-known in other places. If anything, I'm simplifying the dirty laundry list for the purposes of getting to the point. Nero may have been the man of lawlessness, and he most certainly was, but let's not lose sight of the fact that his life was based around theater. Nero was an actor, and Rome was his stage. Performance witchcraft is a thing, you know. Actually, it's a discipline, and it goes all the way back to Babylon. Everything you've just read regarding Nero's debauchery was intended for public consumption. 
the Caesar family murders, the gender bending, the sexual perversion, the endless circus entertainment, the hunts, the burning of Rome. Intel performs the same feat today. If Nero gave the old psychodrama a twist to the nipple, it's likely because the death and rebirth ceremony was intended all along. Yes, there were real victims, but there were also fake victims. Even the Wikipedia is pressed to address history's insistence that Nero was one of the later. So follow along. Now, I obviously don't have a magnifying glass. I'm not going to read this, but I do put these uh, quotes in Wikipedia, from Wikipedia into my papers, because I used to not do it. And then I would go back and find out that I would be totally gaslit and they would change around just the parts I was quoting from to, you know, to make it look like I was <laughs> just making this stuff up. Were you able to read that? I wasn't. You'd either need the vision of a bald eagle or a pair of binoculars to make out those words. I'll copy and paste the first paragraph for your convenience, and here's what it says. The Nero Redivivus legend was a belief popular during the last part of the first century that the Roman Emperor Nero would return after his death in 68 AD. The legend was a common belief as late as the 5th century. I wish I would have you know, put that in yellow as well. The belief was either the result or cause of several pretenders who posed as Nero leading rebellions. Of all the murders and suicides, including Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and Cleopatra, why would Nero's fare any different? It shouldn't. I've pointed out time and again in my papers how the official narrative attempts to pass everything off as organic, when in fact the intel department is the one drawing up the blueprints for the folk movement. How do you pass several pretenders off as Nero? The claim is that Nero imposters were raising armies intended to incite rebellion. Excuse me while I LOL, 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 LOL myself to sleep. Who was funding these Nero imposter armies? Also, who was going about alerting the public consciousness to the fact that Nero's suicide was a hoax? First century Roman truthers? Stop it, my sides are aching from laughter. Intel has their dirty little paws in everything, and I see little difference on the game board then as well as now. The second paragraph, which you were unlikely capable of reading, has the Sibylline oracles claiming Nero escaped to Parthia. I just so happen to have read that passage and will quote it for your convenience soon enough. But then, Sibylline oracles aside, we see this right here. Um, Again, you need a magnifying glass to read this. It says there were at least three Nero impersonators who emerged leading rebellions. The first appeared as little as one year after Nero's death in 69. Two more appeared during the reigns of brothers Titus and Domitian. Really, were the Flavians bored or something? In other news, Rome made Nero an enemy of the state. See how they play all sides? The only gullible people are those who believe someone is capable of fooling masses of Romans into thinking he is Nero, all on his own. I mean, I might as well go around trying to convince people I'm John F. Kennedy Jr. Who would believe it? Nobody. Again, if Nero's sightings were the immediate norm, and these so-called Nero impersonators were raising armies, then the most obvious deduction is that intel is behind it, a.k.a. the Flavians. I've probably said this over a hundred times already. It's all psychodrama. 
<laughs> Apparently, Nero lounged around on a couch for a few hundred years, dreaming up the grand designs of his new and improved pleasure palace once he finally got around to conquering the world with his conveniently well-financed army. No, I am not an art critic, but if I were, that's what I would say is going on in this here painting, and I'd totally stick to it. I am finding quotes on the Nero Ritaviva subject throughout the obscure pages of our his story, by the way, and have arrived at the conclusion that Nero's return was the conspiracy theory among crazy uncles back in the day, come family gathering at Pasha and Sukkot. Of course, everyone's back alley red pill dispenser would have very likely been well acquainted with the Sibylline oracles back in the day. Oracles which were supposedly written by Sibyl, a woman identifying herself as a native of Babylon and a daughter of Noah. And in these oracles, she writes the following. Again, another fearful man shall come and dreadful numbering 50. And from all the cities, many noblest citizens born to wealth, he shall utterly destroy a dreadful serpent breathing grievous war, who sometimes stretching forth his hands shall make an end of his own race and stir all things, acting the athlete, driving chariots, putting to death and daring countless things. And he shall cleave the mountain of two seas and sprinkle it with gore and out of sight shall also vanish the destructive man, then making himself equal unto Elohim. Shall he return, but Elohim will prove him not. That's the Sibling Oracles, Book 5, stanzas 135 through 147. The number 50 is for his initials, indicating that we are to dial in for Nero in the Hebrew. Sibyl also identifies him as a dreadful serpent, which may mean that he was possessed by the serpent, a probable conclusion to make, or that he was just as likely a son and therefore the seed of the serpent. Either option, his suicide was a hoax. He simply vanished from sight so that he might one day return, making himself equal unto Elohim. For the record, the return of Nero is not some future event which we are all expected to wait upon. Even according to the sibling oracles, it already happened, according to where we're at on the timeline. Sorry, you missed out on the glorious appearing in 70 AD, but then you missed out on that one too, on Nero's return. I have already presented the evidence in my 7,000-year timeline deception paper and don't intend on murdering a tree so as to repeat the same information here. Actually, by the way, just so you guys know, this is what I just referred to here. I intend to cover later this week. In review, though, the arrival of the 1,000-year reign of Yahushua HaMashiach transpired with the fall of Rome 500 years after his death and resurrection. Sybil gives us a chronology when specifically mentioning Hadrian the emperor who defiantly rebuilt a city over the ruins of Yerushalayim. That is of the utmost importance because the preterist Tartarian hybrids insist that the millennial kingdom began as a physical manifestation upon the earth in the whereabouts of 70 AD, some say 72. But the evidence that I've come up with says differently. And again, if you guys want to disagree, that's fine. Sybil then insinuates Christianity's rise to prominence under Constantine, adding that there were ruling Latin sons born to him, little Latinos. And then with the first Phoenix sighting since Emperor Tiberius 500 years later, Nero arrives from the east only to be defeated by Mashiach. It's as my grandmother used to say, they simply don't teach his story like they used to. So if you're confused by what I just covered, uh, I will be going more into depth on that, Yah willing, later this week. Hopefully tomorrow. 
The ascension of Yeshiyahu essentially manages to say the same thing. Now, Yeshiyahu is Isaiah. So the ascension of Isaiah. I love that book, by the way. It identifies Nero as the embodiment of the serpent, but then instigates the conclusion of the world through him, through Nero and Hasatan. And so here's the passage right here. And this comes from chapter four of the ascension of Isaiah. And now Hezekiah and Shiar, Yashuv, my son, these are the days of completion of the world. After it is consummated, Belial, the great ruler, the king of this world, will descend, who has ruled it since it came into being. Yea, he will descend from his expanse in the likeness of a man, a lawless king, the slayer of his mother, who himself, even this king, will persecute the plants, the called out assembly, which the twelve apostles of the beloved have planted. Of the twelve, one will be delivered into his hands. This ruler in the and the of the twelve that one will be delivered in his hands, that's a reference to Kepha. This ruler in the form of that king will come, and there will come with him all the powers of this world, and they will hearken unto him and all that he desires. And at his word, the sun will rise at night, and he will make the moon to appear at the sixth hour, and all that he has desired he will do in the world. He will do and speak like the beloved, and he will say, I am Elohim, and before me there has been none. And all the people in the world will believe in him, and they will sacrifice to him, and they will serve him, saying, This is Elohim, and besides him there is no other. And the greater number of those who shall have been associated together in order to receive the beloved, he will turn aside after him. And there will be the power of his miracles in every city and region. And he will set up his image before him in every city. And he shall bear sway three years and seven months and twenty-seven days, and many believers and Kodeshim, having seen him for whom they were hoping, who was crucified, Yahusha HaMashiach, after, after that I, Yeshayahu, had seen him who was crucified and ascended, and those also who were believers in him, of these few in those days will be left as his servants, while they flee from desert to desert, awaiting the coming of the Beloved. And after 1,332 days, Adonai will come with his angels and with the armies of the holy ones from the seventh heaven, with the glory of the seventh heaven, and he will drag Bilial into Gehenna and also his armies. And he will give rest to the holy whom he shall find in the body in this world, and the sun will be ashamed. And to all who, because of their faith in him, have execrated Bilial and his kings, but the Kodeshim will come with Adonai with their garments, which are now stored up on high in the seventh heaven. And Adonai, or with Adonai they will come, whose Ruachoth are clothed. They will descend and be present in the world, and he will strengthen those who have been found in the body together with the Kodeshim and their garments of the Kodeshim. And Adonai will minister to those who have kept watch in this world. The Ascension of Yeshayahu, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. The lawless king is obviously Nero. He is identified as the slayer of his mother. There's your first clue. Because he had some serious mommy issues, you know, and also the persecutor of the church. And that was, again, Nero. The one who was delivered into his hands was Kepha, as I pointed out. It is at that point in the passage when the text breaks between two separate mile markers. Everything that follows is future tense to the fig tree generation though still a past memory for us, albeit scrubbed. It has to be that way. There is no other way around it. I have read chapter four repeatedly over the last so many years and never could make sense of the linear events until 
the neural rendezvous theory came into my peripheral view. Read verse 4 again. The ruler in the form of that king indicates that Belial would descend from his realm directly below the firmament with the, so it's saying that, you know, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's, he lives, he's not above the firmament. He's below the firmament. Indicates that he would descend from his realm directly below the firmament with the appearance of the man who'd earlier hung Kepha upside down. The world was promised to worship Nero as Elohim because he's all about the tub thumping. You know, <laughs> getting knocked down, but then getting up again, pissing the night away and all that. I have just given you a 90s reference and you had to have been there, I guess. The same text promises that Bilial would be dragged into Gehenna with all of his armies at the appearance of Yehusha HaMashiach, arriving from the seventh heaven with his armies. I will remind you that the temple hadn't even been destroyed at the moment of his gunshot wound to the head. I will even go so far as to quote the scholars on this particular outing. The common consensus is that the ascension of Yahshiyahu is a late first century Christian text. Now, normally, I could care less about agreeing with their timestamps, and the sentiment still applies here. I simply want to point out that Nero's life had already been told by this point. If what they're saying is true, and nothing that we read here matches what we know. There's more to the story is what I'm getting at. Yes, the 70 AD narrative was a literal fulfillment of Yochanan's revelation, but this isn't referencing Yochanan's revelation. This is a different event. I'm not flip-flopping on that fact. It's just that his story went on for another 500 years as another date with destiny was awaiting them. Well, that's it for this presentation, I guess. It looks like that's it. And like I said, all this week, y'all willing, I hope to put out two or three more videos that's going to further develop this point of Nero and how it pertains to his return in 500 AD. And the fact that there's enough texts out there reporting that. And of course, you can come to your own conclusions. Uh, either those texts did happen or they didn't happen. And I'm, of course, of the opinion that they did. So stay tuned.